Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memory of Hal Blaine, Tommy Tedesco, and the legacy known as the Wrecking Crew. You're listening to See Here. to see here podcast episode 113 and for those of you who don't follow us on the facebook page it's our 10th anniversary 10 years ago this show started and we spoke about hated the gg allen story and i'm sorry <laughs> you wanted to give me a trial by fire tim let me introduce uh, my colleagues my friends my fellow lovers of music related films on this podcast the man who was on that show 10 years ago mr tim merrill yeah i wanted to make sure that this podcast stuck from day one uh, and you achieved that ambition and someone who wasn't on that podcast 10 years ago she's only been on the podcast continuously for the last 12 months or so although she did appear on a, as a guest on a few early episodes but she's well and truly a and we love her it's Kerry Fristo. <laughs> Hello. Here we are 10 years later. Uh, I'm going to pat us all on the back. I'm going to pat me on the back, I think, because <laughs> uh, as I think you've gone and pointed out, Tim, the podcasting world is littered with, it's like a graveyard. There's so many shows that didn't last. And here we are 10 years later. We basically uh, took our time, one show a month. And for those of you who know your arithmetic, yes, I understand. This isn't episode 121. So we did miss out a few shows along the way, but mostly we've been consistent. But I have to say, we will be vindicated by history. We will. Um, <laughs> yes, here we are all those years later. And just a shout out to a very, very wonderful friend, Bernie Stickwell. Sticky. You're always here, Sticky, every episode, buddy. You may not be on the show, but you don't quit see here. That's You just can't do it. That's so, right. Bernie, it's like the mafia. This, ex exactly. <laughs> well, it's like, well, I was thinking more like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. He said that about Danny Federici and Clarence Clemens. He said, you don't leave. Not even dying gets you out of the E Street Band. So no. um, <laughs> our, our love to Bernie Sticky and credits to Wendy Freeman, who, who was on the first year and a half of uh, see here. A huge thanks 
thanks to anyone who'd ever been a guest conversationalist, a director, or someone who just came on the show just to talk about a film that they loved. And the largest part of all, anyone who's ever taken the time to listen. Absolutely. Even, even if you listened for five minutes and said it wasn't for you and turned it off, I thank you for listening. I thank everyone for listening, and I thank everyone, and I hope that what we could do in the littlest bit is uh, give you some entertainment, give you some laughs, and help you just pass your day. One more huge thank you. I do this most shows, but really uh, huge thanks to uh, Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli over at Pantheon Networks, the network that focuses almost exclusively on music discussion podcasts. And back when I sent them an email saying, hey, can we be part of your gang? They listened to the show and they weren't put off. So um, huge thanks to uh, those guys and anyone within the Pantheon Network who's also listened to the show and expressed their love of what we do. Um, we're hugely grateful. So here we are onwards and upwards. This is the start of our next lot of 10 years. And boy, have we got a good one for you. We've just gotten off the Zoom connections with director Denny Tedesco, the son of Tommy Tedesco, a legendary member of the Wrecking Crew. Now, about three months ago, the three of us had a roundtable discussion about Denny's film, The Wrecking Crew, about his documentary, about those legendary LA session musicians. But Denny seems to have a love for LA session musicians. So his follow-up film just released is called Immediate family. And it's about a group of guys who you have their records in your collection. They were session musicians, but they wanted to be a band unto themselves. They loved these songwriters. They were not just musicians for hire. They were guys who loved the music, loved the songwriters, and went and toured with people like James Taylor and Carole King and Jackson Brown. Uh, so I'm talking about the musician Leland Sklar, one of the most impressive beards in all of music. Drummer Russ Kunkel, uh, uh, and guitarist Danny Korchmar, otherwise known as Danny Cooch, and uh, Wadi Watel. You know these guys, even if you don't think you know them. They've been in, um, they, they've played on albums like New Morning by Bob Dylan, one of my favorite Bob Dylan albums. Uh, Danny Korchmar played on Keith Moon's one solo album, Two Sides of the Moon. They've played on albums by Harry Nilsson, Linda Ronstadt, uh, Randy Newman. If you're an Australian listener, uh, Wadi Watel co-produced and did backup vocals for the Church's album Starfish. Uh, Leland Sklar played on a couple of Billy Thorpe albums. Mind you, once Billy Thorpe went to LA, Lee played on Alice Cooper's From the Inside. These guys, they played for uh, John Prine. So amazing musicians play for an amazing array of songwriters. And these are only the people who we know by name. They played for a ton of people who are far more obscure, but these guys love songwriters and they contributed a hell of a lot. So we had a great conversation with Denny Tedesco. So what we're going to do now is play you the trailer for this incredible film, Immediate Family, and then we'll launch into our conversation with Denny, who was, what can I say, just an amazing guest, told us some great stories. Enjoy the next hour and a half or whatever it is, and then we'll come back to talk about what we're going to do for episode 114 of See Here. In the early 70s, you couldn't pick up an album and look at the liner notes without seeing these guys' names. I would buy records just because they were on it. The creative input of these session guys cannot be overstated. It can't be overstated. Russ Kunkel. Danny Korchmore. Lee Sklar. 
Duari. They were just musicians we knew, and they gradually became legendary session musicians. My main goal is to not get fired. <laughs> <laughs> Tapestry, the whole thing was done in three weeks. Three songs in one day, and we didn't piece yeah. together the best. No, like, it wasn't overdubbed. Look, we were all in our 20s. Now, there was no sleeping. Each album became like a, what's the next thing they're gonna do? Not only did they give birth to this music, they're as much the author of these songs as the artist they did it with. Ego goes out the window. Well, I'm not sure that's true. I have a huge ego as well. <laughs> you can walk across the water. I could get hipper, younger people. In, in this hotel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but these are the people that play it best. All I can express is admiration for these guys. Four truly great players, all of them masters of their instrument. In hindsight, I was just happy to be there. I've got a band full of brothers that love me. I'm proud of all of it. Welcome back to episode 113 of the See Here podcast and on our 10th anniversary show. Have I said that already? Maybe I have. Terry, Tim and myself are absolutely thrilled to bring to the show a man who we spoke about only three episodes ago in his film, The Wrecking Crew, and now a sequel, if you will, I guess, The Immediate Family. Welcome to the show, Denny Tedesco. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for uh, coming on to this program as you've just gotten off the road driving between Los Angeles and San Francisco. Yes, this is I dropped, my, I dropped my son off at college, midterm. So wow. it's not, not the tearjerker, but still, I drove him up and drove back. You're a better father than I am. I just dropped my daughter <laughs> off down the road 10 minutes, you know, said, I've got a podcast to record. You go the full eight hour trip or whatever it is. But you know what kept me going? Knowing I was going to talk to you. <laughs> Thank Aww. you. And the check is in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> Denny, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on your new film, Immediate Family. Thank you. That focuses on four specific session players in the LA scene through the 70s and the 80s. Nominally, the bassist Leland Sklar with the greatest beard in rock. I was thinking of Gibbons. No. I was thinking oh, yeah, of Gibbons. Well, yeah, that's true. Russ Kunkel, drummer, guitarist, Danny Korchmar and Wadi Wachtel. We've all heard them on a ton of albums over there main eras of recording and as you point out in the film they were the first or maybe amongst the first session players to have their names in the credits on album covers now you already had a connection to the wrecking crew via your father tommy tedesco the great guitar player who was part of that pool of players did you actually know any of the guys who well they didn't get the name immediate family until the last right. 10 years or so which we'll come to but did you know any of those guys over over the years. I only I only knew Leland because Leland would come to events for the uh, Wrecking Crew over the years. Leland's a, a very interesting character. I mean, he's, he's such a cool guy and 
so supportive. And he was the one that was, Leland worked with Hal, worked with my dad. I didn't realize he worked with my dad till years later. He was the one of all these guys that actually went into, he could do the rock and roll albums going on the road with the groups, but also he was the one that could actually work on TV themes and movie things because he could read music and he was a fabulous bass player. So he was a crossover in a sense. He could work with those guys and then go do the other stuff. He was a classically trained musician. Yeah, yeah. He was a pianist when he was a little kid. He said, until he was about 13, 14. And then they, they didn't need a piano player in the band. And they gave him a stand-up and he said, that changed my life. Even though it wasn't stand-up, he learned how to do, uh, after that, he went on to do Fender Electric. We'd all heard him on records without knowing for years before yeah. that, but I'm pretty sure that the first time I ever saw him was probably in a Phil Collins film clip or something like that in the 80s. with that beard and it's funny because he says someone says he hasn't changed he goes i haven't changed i'm just negative meaning like the beard has gone all white and gray versus the old days it was all black so it looks like a flip of the negative uh film you know you know what they should have done is they should have had a super group with leon russell billy gibbons Oh, that would have been cool. A lot of good beards. A lot of good beards. I'm trying to think yeah. if there's a great drummer with, there has to be a great drummer with a beard all the way down to the floor. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, the other guys, it's funny because when I interviewed Peter Asher, and that was something that came up, you know, it was at the beginning of this interview or of this film, I interviewed Peter and I said something about the guys being legends, you know, when he's working with them. He goes, and he looked at me like, they weren't legends. They were our friends. And I realized Peter is working with James Taylor, Sweet Baby James, and Russ and Danny. It's their first albums, in a sense. And then Russ, that within a year, Russ does Sweet Baby James, Tapestry, uh, with Carol King, and Joni Mitchell's Blue. I mean, those three albums, you could quit um, yeah. yep. having that on your resume. But he goes, they were legends, though, at that point. You know, they become legends. And that's funny, because just because I buy an album and it's Tapestry and it's Sweet Baby James or whatever, I just assume they're everywhere. It's their first albums, you know, and yeah. Leland doesn't even do that until Much, much Life Lives. Is that right? Yeah. Right. Because he doesn't do Tapestry. I like the part where James Taylor actually says, you know, I never felt like it was my band. I felt like I was in a band. Yeah. And, and I, I like the idea that they're almost like a gang. Totally. You know, and I said this to someone the other day. I said the difference between, uh, so my dad and the Wrecking Crew guys, they're going session to session, session to session. They're doing three hours, three hours, three hours. And that was what the law of the AFM, meaning like the union was. They didn't want you doing a whole album in three hours. You had three songs you could do, four songs. So it was to protect work. But in those days, the reason also was because you only had a minimum tracks. So no one's messing around in those early days. They literally had to do an album a day. Maybe every other day they'd get an album out. Six songs in the morning, six songs in the evening, maybe. But the 70s come around, things start changing. Now the labels are trusting they're going to make the money. So now there's more tracks. Now let's give James a budget and Peter a budget and see what they come back with. And they, they leave them alone. And that's where they start bonding. They're spending time with James and Linda and Carol and whoever. They're spending time recording the album, and then they spend months on the road with him. And that yeah. becomes family. See, that's something that struck me about 
this group of musicians, which you're confirming here, they had the best of both worlds. Would it be fair to say that the Wrecking Crew guys, like obviously they were drawn to music, but music was just a job. These guys, they wanted to be a gang and they wanted to be a group and they could afford to go around to the thousands of songwriters that they did. That's a really interesting comment because coming from the son of one of those people, my dad was felt lucky to get paid as a musician. And he went to work and his feeling was, listen, I play for smiles. If the guy's smiling or she's smiling, I'm doing my job right. If it's not smiling, I got to start changing it up. So even if it musically, I don't think it's correct, but they want me to sound dumb it down, I'll dumb it down for them. You know what I mean? It's their pain. It was a different mentality of those days. You know, but don't forget 1960, my dad still hasn't hit the rock and roll era yet. You know what I mean? He hasn't done the, Phil Spector and the Beach Boys haven't really come into this yet. Or the Monkees or all the Moms and Papas, that whole era of what they were doing hasn't really developed yet. Dad's 30 at that point. So when he does start working with Brian Wilson and the boys, those kids are kids. I mean, there's what, 15, 17, 18, 19, whatever. They're nothing. So he's looking at that. He, I mean, he really liked about, if he had anything he had to say about the Beach Boys, he goes, I love their harmonies. But musically, my dad, it wasn't his type of, it wasn't his appetite. And so, yes, in a lot of ways, I don't think they had enough time to appreciate productions. So when I say they went through three hours, three hours, three hours, I'm just saying, and I don't, and others did. I think Hal Blaine had appreciation, Don Randy had appreciation. I'm not saying my father didn't have appreciation of the music. When he loved it, he loved it. But he goes, there's music and there's the music business. Sometimes they met. With both the immediate family and with the wrecking crew, to me, because like you said, there was the three-hour sessions and everything, you could almost think in your mind that it would be like an assembly line where yeah. you know, you're know you just punching out license plates, right? But the thing is, though, the soul came out of everything, regardless of what they were doing. Yeah, it was. they're not calling it in. You're right. They're not no, calling no, it no. in. No, no, no. I see them more like carpenters. Like guys yeah. that were building homes that, you know, yeah, the, this home might look like that home, but they put their heart and soul into the home and built a solid foundation. And that home was going to last for years and years and years, you know. Yeah. And I see that carried on in both the Wrecking Crew and the immediate family. But then again, like when we're talking about how quickly everything went down, you would just think like next, next, next. Yeah. But they but they had the heart in it. Yeah, it, that was exactly it. And, and the, the thing is, when the 70s guys come around like a Jackson Brown, those guys didn't want. Guys like my dad, not my dad necessarily, but that era of we're going to lay it down. You know, they wanted more input. And I think it was the timing was perfect. The other thing that was the big difference is. You never went on the road if you were in the in the 60s in the wrecking crew. You did not leave town. It was just too busy. It was funny because they used to say you were so busy, well, not by the work you were doing, by how much you turned down. And my father would keep a list of, you know, on the side, if someone canceled and all of a sudden his other one canceled, he could go back to the other one or whatever. He knew who called. Hey, if you still need somebody, I'm available. And things like that, they were so busy that you just did not go on the road because the road paid crap. You know, it wasn't a good gig to be the road man. You just made me think about the immediate family has a song, Skin in the Game. And that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, and that's they wrote it for this movie. You can walk across the water, you can swim across the sea, but there ain't no buried treasure and there's no land. Giving your all 
great. Yeah, so we asked them to write something, and then that was it. So I kind of incorporated an instrumental part at the beginning, or at the beginning, in the middle, and then come back with it at the end of the movie. There's a moment in, I think fairly early on in the film, where Mike Post said that the uh, Wrecking Crew era had ended and had its day. But, I mean, yeah. I can't believe that people like Hal Blaine and Carol Kay and and they all just couldn't get any work. I know that. Like, no, no, it, it, no. What happens? It, it's all right. It's so interesting because again, I'm coming from my father' point of view, and I could see is where his the work changes in '67, '68, or the heyday of records for him. Now the difference is, Dad's career starts maybe less records, but he's going into TV and film. A lot of people didn't do that because he could read the shit out of it, you know, and he had the gut string, he had his multi-instrument that he could play, you know mandolins or whatever so he extended his career into something that was very special uh hal did it for a while and then he went on the road with john denver cheryl did it as long as she could and then she starts teaching and writing books don randy did it for a long time you're just not as busy you have your day and you're just not as busy the greatest line for me in the wrecking crew is with bones hal and i asked him i said in again coming from my point of view i saw careers of my friend's dad's friends come and go and i saw them you know hard some of them and i said what's it like when you guys you worked your way up to be the 18 you know they're coming from london patilla clark's coming everybody's coming to meet you guys and record with you guys and then you're you're not there anymore you're, you're not at the top anymore and bones said it perfectly he goes he goes you got to ramp up and then you're at the top and then you got the ramp down it's not about staying at the top it's taking the ramp down as long as possible and that to me is more important to all of us because we don't know where we are in our careers i'm hoping i'm not at the top right now i'm hoping that i still got i got some leverage going up mark Marin, who the podcast well, comedian said to me when i told him that story he goes yeah it's because we all want to be relevant and I go, you're right. Every one of us wants to be, my mom wanted to be relevant as a mother, uh, as a wife. Any a postman wants to be relevant. Everybody wants to be relevant. So it was a very important line to me. Absolutely. One thing that I kept thinking about, I mean, it's it, obviously this is all about, with the Wrecking Crew era, was about economics. But every musician that I listened to an interview from the late 60s into the 70s and is evidenced on the great multi-collection of garage rock compilations like Nuggets and Boulders and all that. Lenny K stuff, yeah. Lenny K. All these musicians said, my life, well, all the American musicians have said, my life changed the night I saw the Beatles on yeah. the Ed Sullivan show. I went on to form a band. Uh, I yeah. learned my instrument. I went on to form a band. So the very fact that session musicians even continued to exist and to thrive through that period always yeah. seemed pretty incredible to me considering that there were millions of kids. There's, it's so funny because when I talk about the Beatles with my father and his friends, there's nothing there. There's no, not even, not respect. I don't want to say respect. They weren't affected by it. Mental. It's like, because eh. don't forget, first albums are kind of like, you know, Johnny B. Go what, what was it? Ray Roll over Beethoven. It's like they hadn't shown their stuff yet. So they're not sure why is everybody flipping out over how it's going. You know what I mean? It's not something that musicians going, oh, but for the kids that are 14 and immediate family guys, they're tripping because they're looking at this a totally different time. I don't think there's one musician of that era, of that 70 plus. Plus, not 70 plus, but 70, let's say 70, 75, that wasn't affected by that, by the Beatles. 
stuffed here at the producer of Wrecking Crew era. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, what about when the Beatle, you know, invasion came, Beatle mania? He goes, and he was such a Texan. And he had no, he didn't hold back. He goes, ah, oh, it's a bunch of bullshit at that time. Anybody with an English accent, it could have been a, uh, he goes, uh, a chimney cleaner. They could have a, they'd be on label. <laughs> it was like, he, he, he said, it did get out of hand. He's not saying that the Beatles were great. He just said everybody was looking for the next Beatles. You know, I mean, that was before my time, you know, the Beatles and Ed Sullivan. But for me, being a little kid, one thing that I remember who came out of the Wrecking Crew, and I remember seeing pretty regular on television, was uh, Glenn Campbell, the Glenn Campbell Show. I am a lineman for the county And I drive the main road Searching in the sun for an How many of the guys actually wound up becoming singer-songwriters in their own right? Because, I mean, like, one of my heroes, Leon Russell. Lenin, Leon. That was it, eh? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you had people that were part of bands, like you did uh, Larry Nectel was part of Bread, but none of them really went off and did that. And it's a really interesting thing. It kind of goes back to what James said, James Taylor said, what you were saying earlier. I just want to be part of that band. And in a weird way, a lot of these guys, even Carol King, she has such insecurity about being an artist. And it's hard to believe that some of these greatest artists are insecure. But when uh, James Taylor had his original What Was It, The Flying Machine, you know, Danny said, why don't you just call the James Taylor group? He goes, no, 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 call it James Taylor and The Flying Machine. I think that's how I see it. It's some kind of comfort level. I'm not alone. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, true. it's like if you go down with a band, you're going down together. None of these guys... I think Waddy might have had a small contract early days, but none of them. And Danny had a few albums by himself, but he never felt comfortable with it. It didn't seem like he seemed comfortable with it. He was better off collaborating as a producer. Yeah. Waddy was talking about when he had that psych band where they actually said they were going to sign them, right? And then all of a sudden he gets a phone call the next day where he says, no, well, we're not going to sign them. Yeah, and that what that was yeah. was the backstory is because of it was by Council of the Council's father, and that was a horrible. You know, he was a not a good man. I'm not saying it out of you know it's in the Council documentary, and he brought uh, Wadi's band from the East Coast to the West Coast, and he played it for uh, Armin. Help me out, Erdogan. Erdogan, right? And he, so he plays it, and he all of a sudden he gets a call from him, and he's that's in the background. He got all excited. He goes, I love this band. Da, da, da. And the next day, Bud Council blows it out. He says, no, 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 no. And what Bud was doing was, I think, kind of throwing that out there to try to get a Council deal, too. I don't know what the problem was, but it was basically they blew it. It's a real shame, too, because look what we got, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but these guys just wanted to, they just want to play. And right. I think, you know, I'm not a musician. I can't play the third chord. So I just admire everybody that just wants to sit down and keep playing. Even during COVID, these guys never stopped playing, even though they were, oh. Isn't technology great? We, oh. can, um, we can do that. Yeah. Not to go f too far ahead, but like one of my, my top five albums of all time, bar none. And I mean, like my, when I listen to music, wise is right across the spectrum but one of my top fives and it will be till the day I die is running on empty you take Sally and I take Sue there ain't no difference between the two cocaine burn all around my brain I 
Heading down Scott, turning up Main Looking for that girl who sells cocaine when you talked about the idea that these guys just wanted to play, one part of your film that blew my mind was, you know, where they actually tore the beds out of the hotel and they were recording in a hotel. And I'm thinking, yeah. where, where Joe Walsh is knocking the fucking wall out of a hotel just because he wants to party with the guys next door, Jackson Brown and the boys are just putting the bed to the side and setting up. And Jackson's in the bathroom doing his vocals. Yeah, and even recording on the bus. And like when they're talking about getting the bus sounds and everything, and to me, honest to God, not just because I love the music, but if there's ever an album in the 70s that really kind of, to me, exemplifies the road, it's running on empty. It's all there. To me, it's like an old pair of jeans, man. It just, it just fits perfectly. I'll give you a little secret that I haven't told anybody, but not secret. It's not that big of a deal. The conversation I had with Jackson, I don't know if you remember part of it, is Jackson says it was like a, tr a train running night after night after night or something. Right. Editor cut that in. You know, it's been weeks since I've been, whatever. You, you do the interview, we're still trying to collect interviews. So it could have been months before I see something with that. He cuts it in and it's great, working for me, da, da, da. And then Jackson calls me one day and like, you know, it's like, if I'm going to name drop, it's like, great. Jackson Brown calls me. It's like the only time I'll ever get that call. But he goes, hey, I really love the film. And I, I had met him a couple of times after the film came out. He was at the screening when we showed it to the guys the first time and Jackson was there. And I knew he loved it because we went afterwards, we all went out and he was very kind. But he, this thing was bugging him. He goes, listen, I love the film, but this thing's bugging me. I, what? He goes, that line I give about the train night after night, he goes, that wasn't a positive comment. And I go, I don't remember. And I totally didn't remember. He goes, it was out of control every night. It wasn't happening. And then finally, the last night it came together. And it was so funny how one little line was used by us as a positive. And that's how we took it. And But he said it was a rough, rough run for it. When you listen to the album, and I mean, you got tracks like Cocaine, and you got the whole thing about One More for the Road and, and all that. Like, it's just, you, you can tell, like, you know, it's guys just trying to hold on and just keep going one more show and one more show and one more show. And, it, you know, and you, you really get the kind of, not desperation, but just kind of that holding on by your fingernails. And they had been on the road for months at that point, because I think they just came off of James Taylor. They have two weeks to rehearse for this new, you know, for Jackson's idea, you know, and then they're out on the road again for months doing this album. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Waddy Wattel even said that we were in our 20s. We never stopped. We never went to sleep, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I'm sure is true. It's funny. The one, the, the straightest cat of all of them is obviously is Leland. Leland doesn't, he's never done a drug. He could take count on his hand the amount of drink he's ever had. Not because he's, you know, he's not related. He just don't like it. Never did. Never. Right. And he never wanted to be out of control. So during all these things, Leland's putting people to bed, at, you know, after hours. You know, right. And taking care of a lot of people. It might sound funny, but it, it might sound weird, sound weird to some people. But I, I see Leland. He could have been like almost like a Jedi. Like he's just got, oh, he's yeah. got that, he's got that kind of stoicism about him. He's got that kind of like focus, and he's just like, yeah, I can see yeah, it. The poise. He's obviously highly intelligent too. Just the, he comes off as a very, very intelligent guy. Amazing to be on the road with. By the way, I can say that personally. A lot of times I've been on the road with him for five, six. I just got back from Florida last couple of days ago, and it was like five days with him there. And it was like he gives you a hundred and ten percent. If he that person's coming to say hello and sign a book he's there for you if he's leaving they're not even signed a book they'll just talk to him and he's just so giving 
he has the group one of the greatest quotes in the film because he's you know somebody said to him you know how do you get up and play the same song every night or something and he said you know there might be one person in the audience who's never heard this song before and yeah. that's who i'm playing for nobody's phoning it in here not at all no. not any of them really no he's really in the joy he gets out of it that's what's so amazing the joy i could only hope that we all get the joy at our point you know i think we do we're doing what we're doing when uh he's talking about with james taylor wincing when he goes out and he sees the front row with all the t-shirts with the leland's fan yeah. club and he's just <laughs> Yeah. That was funny. So sorry, dude. I, I I don't know what's going on. That's forty something years ago. Because that's got to be like the flag tour in seventy nine. Right. You know what I mean? Oh, wow. It's a long time ago that someone decided. <laughs> which shows the impact that these guys had at this point. They're on the albums and they're on the tour. So it was pretty cool. One of the and things Phil that I didn't realize is how much Peter Asher had to do oh with God. the notoriety of these people. The fact that they were even name-checked on the album. The, the only thing that's wrong about that comment is it's actually Lou Adler, for sure, was doing it yeah. earlier. Okay. He did with Mamas and Papas. He did with Janet Dean. There were people. But the 70s, when Peter comes, here's the thing. You take Peter out of this picture, everything changes. Because Peter is the relationship. Danny starts it with his relationship as a kid with James Taylor in uh, The Cape. And they become friends. They have a band. It breaks up. And James, he says, well, I'm going to go to London and hang out there in his late 60s. He says, look up my friend Peter Asher. I worked with him when he was with Peter and Gordon. He goes there. And all of a sudden, Peter's got this horrible job at Apple Records looking for his first app. He's literally gone through thousands and thousands of tapes. And all of a sudden, there's this guy named James Taylor knocks on the door. I'm a friend of Danny's. Oh, what do you do? I'm singing. What do you do? Let me hear. And boom. It's like a bad movie script. If you wrote that script, it doesn't work. It's too obvious. And all of a sudden, James becomes this guy. Again, not yet. He has to not do well, I guess, at Apple. I don't remember the reason. But Peter takes James to Warner Brothers. That becomes huge. And then he takes Linda on. And then, you know, and just keeps going. I mean, just the crazy how life changes. I was reading last year a book about the history of Warner Brothers uh, mm. records. Like it was considered like the runt of the uh, yeah. of the whole Warner Brothers company. You know, the, the, it was focused on films and they started making really shit records and or middle of the road records and not focusing on rock and roll until I think Mo Austin decides. Well, because it was that was because Mo went to don't forget it was Reprise. Reprise right. records, and that was all the Frank stuff. Right? That's the right. And, all of it. and it was Mo that said, "If we're going to make money, you got to go rock and roll." Yeah. Was Joni Mitchell the first one, or was, I can't remember who the first one was. But that's where. And then you know, and then you have Lenny Warnaker, who's in my film. Lenny's father was Cy Warnaker from a Liberty Records, mm -hmm. and yeah. so all the stuff in the early '60s, they were doing an album a day, Liberty Records. So Lenny learns from the best of. Them. He's seen all that stuff in his dad's label literally knocking him out and he befriends obviously he befriends or he became friends with Randy Newman they were best friends right and they all that, that whole class clicks and you know they start doing albums and they change the business the whole thing though it seemed like from that book was that 
Warner Brothers, once it got rolling as a musician's type of record label, people like Lenny and Mo Austin and all these guys, they were saying, oh, well, if the the first record doesn't work, that's okay. We'll give them two or three to find their feet. It was a songwriter's musician's record company, and they took chances on people. And Well, the other one is uh, Herb Albert. And them, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, big time. Carpenters, how many albums? I think they had a couple albums with Fable Carpenters. And they went for another one, and that was lit up the world. That was A&R, I guess. You know, that's what you believed in an artist, and you knew what you, you know, how much you had to get going, and and have faith, and give them a shot at it. I don't know what it's like today. How would you describe it today? I don't know. I saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand Walking through the streets of Soho in the rain was looking for the place called Lee Ho Fuchs. Gonna get a big dish of beef chow mein. Give it a shot at it. I have to say that one of the segments in the film that just made me laugh my ass off was the werewolves of London with all the uh, the takes. And then finally, it's just like you know, and on the second take, Waddy's just like, "We got it." And then you know, and then Mick Fleet, "No, no, got to keep going, got to keep going, got to yeah, keep yeah. going." It's, that's hilarious. Like it, that blows my mind. How those guys wanted like sixty smart takes. Because there's also that era of being able to do that. Ten years before you could have done that. There's no way. You didn't have that. Hey, you didn't have time. You're not spending the labor. Was not going to keep you there for six hours until you got solo. And it was funny because Leon, I remember doing an interview with Leon and Leon talking about, you know, Leon comes from the old group. You know, they're yep. playing the solos live. But my dad, all doing solos live. You got solo? It is. Boom. Move on. That, Next. That, that's what you were saying. You had, you had to record 12 tracks in a day. And if you did that, you didn't have a chance to redo your solo. Maybe if you did it again, the whole song again. But I can't imagine that. The nerve wracking it must have been. No, they didn't know different. But I remember Leon said, you know, when he was doing George Harrison album, and I can't remember if it was both ways. He goes, when I was doing working with George, and George kept wanting to do more solos and more solos, and I go, come on, you know, you know, it's going back to the first time, you know, the third one that he did, and also, and then he wanted Leon to do more stuff on his album, and Leon said, what can I do differently that you're gonna like? Everybody's got a different look at it. Right about the time where the Wrecking Crew documentary had come out, we sort of got like this whole period of films that were pulling the curtains back and looking at yeah. musicians up a type, yeah. session musicians. So Ending in the Shadows was the Motown. That was a big one. There yeah. was 20 Feet from Stardom about right. the backup yeah. vocalist. Muscle there was one that was on, I think on Netflix a few years ago called Hired Gun. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. There was, yeah. And a, there was Muscle Shoals. Adore yeah. the Muscle Shoals. Yeah. Muscle Shoals one was great. Documentary. Uh, there's one that we spoke to the director about on this show an English film called The Library Music Film which was that was all I mean it wasn't all set in England but it was it starts off looking at these records that were never meant for the general public but it was like this a core group of musicians who were going from one studio to another studio to another studio and work 
working like 15, 15 hours a day and recording music for films that hadn't been put together yet. And oh, interesting. Or they're doing industrial films or doing like uh, songs for products for companies. Is this Sorry. all in England? And the US. Well, no, 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 because they didn't really touch that much on the US except for once the whole vinyl revival started and people are collecting these KPM records, like radio yeah. stations throwing out these records that never meant anything to them. And the collectors are saying, yes, thank you. We And they took boxes yeah. and crates of this stuff, thus putting up the, the value of them. But it was more about yeah. the music. So like you'd have music written for action films that hadn't even been made yet. Yeah. Um, and well, trust the, me. The libraries now. That's what it, we got. It's, it's you know, putting the music in the library. You can take it, but you don't get exclusive use of it. But it was focusing on these session musicians. So how did you feel like, did you see these films at the time as, yay, we're part of a movement? Or did no. you see these um, films well, as competition? Or No, no, never competition. The reason I say that is, uh, you realize I started mine in 96. Mm. So I think Standing in the Shadow comes out in 2001, 2002. And I remember when it came out, I went, oh, God, you know, I was like so depressed. I didn't see it because I didn't want to see it. You know, I didn't want to be influenced. I'm still making mine because I was doing IMAX films and we were always doing lion films and, you know, bears and everything but tigers. Oh, my. But um, <laughs> I but I went. I remember talking to my friend at Discovery and I, and I said to him, you know, I was so depressed about this film coming out. And, you know, my film's about the same thing. He goes, how many lion films do we do? There's always another side of the story. I said, you're right. So I just kept on putting my head down and kept going. Thank God I didn't see it until after I was, because Standing in the Shadows is a beautiful piece and recreations and the concerts and everything else. And during the struggle of mine, don't forget, I had a struggle with Wrecking Group because no one's given me any money other than all the credit cards that I was flipping and refinancing. I did the stupidest thing is doing all that. But I kept going. And finally, after 12 years, I cut a film. So by the time I cut my film in 08, 09, Standing in the Shadows came out, but none of the others had come out yet. Again, in 2009, there's an article in the Variety magazine, Variety, you know, the trade mag, and it said the struggle of music docs. And they talked about Martin Scorsese with his Stones doc. And they talked about Demi with, I think, the Neil Young doc Mm. and somebody else. And they talked about Denny Tedesco with his Wrecking Crew doc. And none of us can find a home. (laughs) And I went, yeah, baby, I'm on the page of failures. And I thought, this is cool. (laughs) I'm thinking Marty's must be reading this article going, who's Denny Tedesco? Get him on the line. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the closest I came to maybe. Because the belief was they're never going to make money. And so these other films were 20 feet to stardom. These people that backed it are, they really loved the project and believe in not worried about making their money. They were millionaires. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, so God bless them that thank God they had that. And I think they were private investors or whatever. They weren't worried about it. So by the time my film came out, I had to raise $500,000 between 09 and 2015 to pay off $200,000 worth of union musicians got money. And then, you know, a couple hundred thousand more for uh, music. You know, so it took a long time. And I'm not, listen, I'm glad I did it that way. I'm glad everybody got paid. It just took a long time. So how much more difficult was it for immediate family? Did having Wrecking Uh, Crew under your belt make things easier for immediate family? Much easier, much easier because now there's a belief. Actually, it was someone that my producers asked, said, hey, would you be interested in this other doc? And it was about another artist. I said, sure, I don't care. Yeah, I love it, whatever. And that artist didn't want me. He wanted his friend to direct. I said, no, you know, there's no skin. I don't care, you know. I'm just going to say yes to everything. I just, you know, I want to work. And then they said they were one of the producers was telling this to uh, Lisa Roy, who was 
the publicist for immediate family. It was Lisa's idea. So what about this idea? She threw it to the guys. She pitched me on the idea. I said, oh, that's, that's, uh, now that's my thing. I got that one. You know, what's my storyline? This one I'm walking into, I understand the animal. I understand what the beast is one. The other thing is I also understood that I love the fact they have this name called the media family. Now I, you know, the wrecking crew, if you remember, I started the film with, this is the story of my father and his extended family, the wrecking crew. So in a sense, like it's bond, they're bonding again, they're friendships. And the other thing about the media family is at the end of Wrecking Crew, I asked Lou Adler, I said, did you make a conscious decision when you did Tapestry not to use Hal and the guys? He said, no, absolutely not. He goes, Carol brought her own friends in. She brought her James Taylor and Cooch. So it was like, oh my God, this is like someone handing this off to me saying, this is your next film. Go. And you know, it, it, it felt like a lineage. Like this, this feels like the continuation of a lineage, you know? It does. And it, it could go a thousand different ways. And that was the thing is like, well, why didn't you go into the Picaro brothers? Why did you do Jeff and Steve and Toto guys? Or why did you do, you know, Jim Keltner? And why did you do Jim Gordon or this? And there's hundreds of different stories, thousands of different stories. I needed to grab onto something that grabbed on. And that was maybe I Spotted a little, but it was true. They had a band called Media Family, so it worked. Down the hall upstairs from me, there's a girl I swear I never see. I hear the ringing of her phone. She must live up there all alone. She hangs her clothes out on the line. They're hanging there right next to mine. There was something that we were talking a bit about before we started recording this, and I've yeah. heard you bring this up before, a filming technique you employed in both the Wrecking Crew film and Immediate Family right. was having all your musicians sitting around a table yeah. talking about the old days and your camera going around. We know what your inspiration was, but tell the listeners what your inspiration well, was for that. The weird part about it was I grew up, again, my dad's a musician. I never went to work to the dad. So I didn't go to the studio, maybe a couple times here and there as a kid, but I never really, he didn't, he didn't play at home, so I never saw him playing his, you know, he didn't practice. He didn't need to, he played 12 hours a day. Until the 70s, when he started doing his own albums, I saw him play instrument. But all the time, I never saw him in the studio. All I saw were card games at home, dinners, parties, golf. It was always ribbing. It was always these musicians laughing, and they would have these dinners. They were Italian um, Sons of Italy dinners, you know, all of them, the Picaros be there. To that, you know, the Tedascos, they were all there and they would rib each other. That's all they did are musicians. And I realized that Broadway Danny Rose was my inspiration because that was the, the story of uh, Woody Allen as his character named Danny Rose. And all the managers would talk about it at this coffee table, the Dallas. And that's how I love filmmaking like that with Barry Levinson or they would just boom, 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 boom. It's like they step on each other's lines. And I realized that's what musicians do. They step on each other. It's just to get the next joke out or the next story out. So that's why I set it up and I did it with both times. You know, luckily I'm two for two. <laughs> I always think, oh my God, what if I got a dead table? But, you know, you get the characters, you know, you kind of just give them a start and let them go and they go. You know, I, I like being a voyeur. I don't like being the interviewer. I like to listen and, and that's how I like to do that. Well, that's the chance for them to bounce off each other rather than necessarily bouncing off Absolutely. you. Absolutely. No, I was going to say in the film, like how Leland says he likes to be in the background and how a lot of them can be behind. But then when when you're actually having them sit down, it's them forefront. It's really weird because that was, was the emotional part of this journey with these guys 
when I showed it that one day with Jackson and the guys, this is during COVID, this is 2021, whenever it was, I don't remember, 22. And I just remember everybody being separated with their mask in a little theater. And they were just teary-eyed because no one's ever asked them about them. They've never seen story, a doc on them. They've done hundreds of docs about everybody else. And they're always got that 10 seconds of, or five seconds of Wadi or Leland about, you know, Linda or something. And it was, it's about them and it's really emotional to them. Another thing that I thought was really cool from the film was your opening credits. The uh, tree, yeah. That, that, I, like I mean, that. That, that was so smart. Was that your idea or did yeah. you get a separate animation no, subcontractor? I can actually take, no, I got someone else to do it. But the, the idea came from, again, trying to figure out how am I going to get, with the Wrecking Crew, I, you know, you kind of said, there's a somewhat of a formula, especially with docs. But it's like, how do I get across that these guys are very important in music? You got to get the music across very quickly. And Wrecking Crew, we did it in one way. But I thought, well, how are we doing it with these guys? And I thought, well, again, they all play with separate people and they have a media family. I don't know how I came up with the tree, but then I went looking for someone to do the tree. And I used to do those Time Life CD commercials where you catch yourself watching a host say, you know, the... 60s love beats of the 60s or something like that and, and all these songs start playing or one song will start playing but you see all these credits go by but only when you light up one of them with a color that's the song and that's why i made the flower and the tree it was a ode to time life but no it, it was fun because you can't decide who's they've all played maybe three out of the four play with dolly and they've all played with crosby you know all five including steve the, the young guy who's 60 you know something but it was in a way of getting across the story and animation I'll, I'll do it on the next one as well but it is fun to do if you can get in most of those animated things are kind of inside for let's say like leland when the bass is coming down in the studio and it's yeah. It looks like uh, lightning and it uh, feels more like a Frankenstein. And for anybody that knows about Leland's base, it's called Frankenstein. Oh. So that's why I did that. You know, it's just fun. I liked the effect that you did with Wadi. Need to smoke in a cigarette? Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's smoke. my editor. Yeah. My editor is very clever with ways of getting it across. He did that, that whole scene with uh, Ryan cut that as well as the whole scene of uh, where was London. The great thing is to communicate with an editor, you have to be able to communicate and hopefully they hear your side of the story as well as getting it across. And also, I don't want a button pusher. If I say something and they argue with me, meaning like say, well, you know, that's not right. Da, da, da. If I can't convince that person why I want it this way, maybe I shouldn't do it that way. I need to be clear why I'm doing something. I'm not right all the time. Ask my wife. <laughs> how hard? How, how hard was it to get uh, to get Keith on board? through Wadi. Thank God. That was the greatest thing is all these people in this film. I mean, look, I meet the band and you know, we pitched them the idea. Next day, they said yes. And they said, Carol King said she could be in, she's in town in three weeks. You have three weeks to get it together. And I was like, oh my God, I took 19 years for the first film. And now I'm like scrambling to, could I pitch them an idea? It's like, well, let's, you know, I don't really, I'm bullshitting myself through this. I 
still need to learn what I'm asking. And I still remember. And I learned on the job very quickly, you know, and it was Danny and Kim. This says everything about these guys. The love they have for the artists have for them is extraordinary. I had Carol, James, Jackson, Phil Collins, uh, Linda, Ronstead. Um, I love it. Lyle Lovett and Billy Bob. Billy Bob. And those all came before COVID. So they were within two months so quickly. Wow. And then the only ones that, then the ones that picked up, we did uh, obviously uh, uh, Neil Young and Stevie Nicks are COVID shots. Meaning like we did Zoom. I imagine Steve Jordan was also a a COVID truck because he was on Zoom. Yeah. And he was awesome. Phil Collins said one of the best things in the film that I really, that really resonated with me, where he said, I didn't even have to listen to the music. I just saw who was playing on the albums and I bought them, right? Yeah. And that's something that I've, I always used to do, like long before the internet, whereas where a lot of younger people wouldn't understand, but on the back of an album, you'd have the thanks. And then they'd have all the credits to, we'd like to thank this person, this person, this person. And that was your shopping list of where you wanted to go. You're right. And the hardest part was then CDs came around, you couldn't read it. It was so small. The business became singles again. Is that weird? You know, when we're producing singles. But it's almost like, you know, how in the 80s with Tipper Gore, when she wanted those warning labels, yeah. the PM, PMRC labels, as a kid, if you saw a sticker on a record, you knew you were buying it. You didn't have to listen to it already. You knew that it was good. <laughs> because everybody hated it or something wrong with it, right? Well, Thank you, like, Right, what Phil was saying about how, you know, you could see who played on the album. You knew. Done. Done deal. Like, that's it, man. That's like, and, then, and again, it was the time period that when, and like I said, everybody started doing the album. That's the other thing is what changed the business is LPs and FM radio. In the late 60s, all of that's coming together. So LPs or FMs playing longer songs. They're not worried about it. And so LPs, they start sequencing albums. You're putting like, you know, Tapestry, the perfectly sequenced album, obviously. And, you know, they spent time between Lou Adler and Carol. You know, putting, uh, what comes next? Da, da, da. You know, what's uh, don't forget, what's on the B side when you get up to change it? You know, it's funny how we just take it for granted. But we all did that. We were making our own mixtapes. You know, we all became our yes. DJ. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Well, That's it's so funny true. how, like, again, for younger people that might not know this, like back in the 70s, like you said, with FM radio, they used to have half hour power sessions where they put a whole side on so the yeah, DJ could the go and smoke a joint or take a leak or whatever, right? You know, yeah. And they would just, you know, like you'd get that half album of half side of Yes or half side of Dark Side of the Moon, whatever. So somebody could just go out and take a break and come back. And that's where, you know, you really got to intensely listen to what they were doing. Yeah. Because a lot of times when singles were just like bing, 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 and it just shot across the AM dial. But with FM, it seemed like they were giving more focus on the actual artists like giving them a lot more time. If you hear a song now, let's say from, uh, let's say, uh, whatever, James Taylor's song or Van Morrison's song, if you had that album growing up, you know what the next song is. Yes. You know, you know what I mean? It's Even though they don't play it on the radio, I know Crazy Love on the Moondance album is the next song or whatever. And it's like, it's just embedded in us. You know, if we heard it long. Right. I want to ask about one particular session. I don't know whether the gents ever spoke to you about this, but you had a photo still in the film of the guys with one of the greatest singers of the television era, one Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to look this up on YouTube and it's yeah. James Taylor and the guys with Oscar singing your grouchy face. Isn't it amazing that a grouch could be? Feel this way, but a face that looks. 
walk so rotten can't be forgotten in a day. Oh, but it looks so rotten. I thought I'd seen silly smiles before from the folks downstairs at Hooper's store. But yours makes me the maddest, and that's when I feel the gladdest. The more yeah, I smile, of your smiling face. Now, in your five hours, five thousand hours of yeah. bonus extra interview footage, that's bound to be on the DVD. Did I, they ever? Know, so did funny. they talk with you about? It's so funny, damn you, damn you! You should have talked to me last week. Oh um, my! The reason is I just put the DVD stuff together. It was like I went three hours. I went. 179 minutes and 15 seconds or stuff that was barely got in there. That story didn't make it, but the story was when they did it, they got, you know, again, it's Rick Morata, I think, on drums, Wadi, Leland, I remember who else, James, and everybody, I think the night before is just wasted, except for Leland. You know, he's the clean lead. So they come in and they got to do this thing. And there's a point where, because those guys, puppeteers are genius. Those guys are genius. If you ever worked with them, they're phenomenal. They're funny. They, you know, they're quick. So they're dirty. So they're having an argument, like, <laughs> with about not remembering lines and stuff like that in, in a character. And somehow Waddy gets into an argument with Oscar. I think it was uh, Peter Asher or Val Gar- I think it was Peter Asher said it was the funniest thing to see you get into an argument with Oscar. So, um, nice. but I they, can just imagine Oscar saying, Hey, fuck you, long hair, go get a haircut, hippie. Exactly. The Muppets were originally were adult because they were a member of the original Saturday Night Live, like from 1975. They had a Muppet, the Muppets would be on, but not Sesame Street, right? No, no, no not Sesame was, Street. This was Hanson's I when get, he was doing I experimental stuff. Feet. Yeah, when Hanson was I doing mean, experimental. Sesame Street started in the late 60s, but the um, Saturday Night Live started in like 75, I think. But he had there were Muppets, Jim Henson's Muppets. They were just different ones, and right, they were they right. were like sarcastic and you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, shut up, you know, right. and stuff. It was yeah. really funny. But remember that in the late fifties, I think Jim Henson had Permit and Rolf the dogs, who he didn't make use of until the Muppet Show many years later. But Permit yeah. and Rolf would appear, I think, on late night talk uh, uh, variety stuff. shows or something like that. So right. it's another. Good, it's a really good talk, by the way. So uh, which yeah. one? The Muppet one. Uh, Street Gang. Sesame Street, right? What is it? It's Street Gang. It was originally, yeah. I read this book by a guy called Michael Davis. It was called Street Gang. And it was as thorough and detailed as you could get about the history of Sesame Street. And then they made this movie, which, I mean, you can't include everything that's in the book no. in, a, in yeah. a documentary, but it, right. it, had, it had heart. It had everything. It just, yeah, absolutely yeah. beautiful documentary. I recommend the book if you haven't had a chance to read that as well. A couple things I wanted to get in was, I thought it was hilarious how in the film was it with the Everly Brothers yeah. when you know was it Warren Warren was the musical arranger yeah, so Warren Zevon was D so that's how Waddy but how uh, Waddy comes in and it's like that's not how it's played and he's like the fuck you talking about and he's like no and he should yeah. be, oh, you're right that's not how it's played man it's like that's amazing and he wasn't being cocky he's just straight up like look I know what I'm doing it's so funny that's not Waddy being cocky no Waddy can be cocky when he's right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And boy, don't hold, he's not going to hold back. Yeah, it's, it was hilarious. And he goes, that was my beginning of my brother fighting brother relationship with Warren. So they must have butted heads for many years after that. You know, they were good friends, but butted heads, you know, two strong personalities. Right. It's so funny because that's on the outtakes, on the DVD outtakes. There's a continuation of that story. You know, Warren goes, oh, you know, he's all pissed off. And he's 
person showed up. It was fine. You got the job, whatever. And then all of a sudden, Warren plays this classical piece. And he goes, hey, someone asked, what's this? And he plays this classical piece. And Waddy goes, I've only owned one album in the family that was a classical album. And it just happened to be that piece. Right. He goes, oh, you could have played any other piece in the world. I would never have known it. And he nailed it. He goes, da, 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 da. And he walks out. And, and, oh, a, and one was, he goes, it could have been any other, any other. It's the only one I ever knew. And he goes, I didn't tell Warren for like 20 years about it. <laughs> The other thing I thought it was kind of funny, the one thing that came into my mind is with the end of the film, how you're showing the footage of the immediate family playing together. And I was just thinking like people, you know, with all the tribute acts and everything out there, I could just imagine in my head, somebody sitting in the crowd going, yeah, these guys sound pretty good, but they're not as good as the guys who really played this. Well, it's funny because they call themselves the best tribute, not tribute, but the best Cover band? Uh, cover band, yeah. Yeah. Ever. Playing the stuff that they wrote and produced. Only other band that I know, and I'm sure there are probably others, but the only other band that I know of that have done that are the Lords of 52nd Street, where every member of the band is a member of the Billy Joel band, and the only oh. one who's not is the guy behind the Billy. piano and singing the songs. Yeah. Everyone else is a, an ex-Billy Joel band member, and they're all playing Billy Joel songs. Are they playing it out of spite? Or are they, no, are they, no, were they, no. Were they all fired? Yeah, well, yeah. They were all fired, I believe. Although I believe that uh, Liberty DeVito has since made his peace with Billy Joel. And who knows, maybe he made an appearance with the Lords of 52nd Street. But they knew they had this great set of songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, hell, Billy, you owe us this. We're going to make some money off this. Uh, So we should explain for the listeners who haven't seen the film yet, is that Immediate Family, the band Immediate Family, the name only came about in the last, whatever, 10 years or something like that. And uh, And it's all these guys who are doing a combination of their own songs because they're great songwriters unto themselves, but also yeah. are doing songs that they've appeared on. So they're an originals and a tribute act. Yeah, they're original. Yeah. I mean, the guys basically, they came together when someone offered Danny Coachmar a gig to bring, you know, a band to Japan and they wanted to call the section, which was Danny's band from the 70s. He said, no, I don't do that anymore. That's the jazz fusion stuff. I really don't do that. He goes, just call it Media Family. You know, he goes, because it's all my friends. Let's just do that. And that's when they started. And then they started having fun doing it. Then some idiots came up with the idea of doing a, a documentary about it. And <laughs> so now they're stuck with each other. you were filming these guys did they ever say Denny would you please fuck off because we need some time to ourselves we recently watched this documentary about King Crimson and Mm. I saw this thing like some of the outtakes where basically all the members of King Crimson of the last few years had told the director piss off you're getting in our face which is really unusual and of course Robert Fripp himself was not the sole grumpy old man in telling the director we don't want you here now come back next week or something like that. Coming off of Wrecking Crew, them knowing who my father was, Leland playing with my father, and my father was a legend among those guys. They knew I was safe. 
Do you know what I mean? There's moments mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. there was something maybe recorded in the, what I would always do when they come into the studio or whatever. I want a mic on these guys before the cameras even roll. Put a damn mic on them. Start hitting record on the sound because I find that extremely important. That's why at the beginning of the film, you see those, a couple of those shots. Whatever, it's just dialogue. Well, that's there's no camera to that. It's like Waddy messing around and Leland, and I love that behind the scenes. And I will put it on, even though there's no picture, I'll listen to it. You know, you know, and I find something that uh, that's hilarious. And if there's something there that's not good, being like, oh, he'd be pissed if I use that, I won't do it. Obviously, I mean, there's right. times when I'll I'll send something to Waddy. So Waddy, uh, what do you think of this? Ah, don't do that. Yeah, yeah, don't. Thanks. No, and, and, I, and I appreciate it, but I think he appreciates the fact that I'm asking him because it's on that verge of, ooh, we're going over the line. And I don't want to bum anybody out. I know when I'm getting close. You know, I I, I pull my crew back and it, it, sometimes it gets pain in the ass. I wanted, they started taking their mics off at one point. It's like, you fuckers, you know, and something had happened and, you know, they weren't pissed at me. They were pissed at someone else and that became take off the mic. Well, that's not the problem by it, by the way. I'm the result of, you know, it became it nothing to do with us. But it was bummer because that to me is better filmmaking than just having the camera roll. I learned that with my father when my father wasn't around and I wanted to, I, when the first film, I did the round table and then I was shot in film. By the time I got to my father, he was way too weak. I realized I could have interviewed him on a cassette and had a great interview. Right. It's really it's about the message. It's not about the medium. One question I just remembered I wanted to get in. Did the guys ever say anything to you about working with uh, Jesse Ed on Dr. My Eyes? Dr. My Eyes have seen the Absolutely. That's funny because that's an outtake too. They loved him, loved him. And Leland said he comes in, he literally laid one take at it, listened to it and laid it down. That's all. Danny loved him. And he even said, it's funny because he dies. Doesn't he die of an overdose? I think. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly. There's a part. Yeah. And there's a part in the DVD. Someone asked me recently, why didn't you talk about the drug use in the movie? And it's like, I didn't shy away from it, but you only have so much time in a movie to get your point across. There's a lot of things on it. The FM, the radio, the LPs, this person, that person, and drugs. And that was something that Danny talked about. He goes, he goes, I'm still angry with him for dying on me. It's interesting because everybody has their, they survived it. So I want people to know that that wasn't always good. But Jesse Ed Davis, we should point out. Right. Yeah. Boy, that would have been a hell of an interview or a hell of a career, you know, later. That guy was lightning in a bottle. I mean, when you see, you see Rock and Roll Circus with him and Taj Mahal, holy shit. Tim, did you ever hear a guy called John Trudell? Oh, of course. Terry, do you yeah. know John Trudell? I think so. John Trudell, he was a poet. American Indian Movement. Amer American, oh, Native American activist. And he made uh, a few really great albums, but he started out with one called AKA Graffiti Man. And Jesse Ed Davis was so excited by what he was doing. He put together the band for him and recorded. He said, you've got to get the, your poetry down on album and we'll I'll put together the band and play the music behind your poetry. 
there's a documentary, I think you can find it on YouTube, yeah. maybe called Graffiti Man or something like that. But Jesse Ed Davis sort of became a champion for uh, this guy, John Trudell, hugely important, who needs to be known more about. And I think they talk about him in that film, Rumble, the Indians that rocked the world. Fantastic. And and uh, John Trudell and Jesse Davis, important part of that documentary. So. I've been the man in love with love. Chasing stars in woman's eyes Temptation's been my favorite dish Like a kid dreaming of candy stores Wanting sweets beyond my reach Taste of something good calls for more We've digressed heavily here, which is what our show tends to do. One final thing, I sort of want to go around the virtual table. Um, Sorry if I'm putting you on the spot, but Tim, you've already gone and said that probably your favorite album that involved any of these guys was Running on Empty. But I want to to sort of go around the table. Kerry, Denny, any other favorite albums that you can think of that these guys have been involved with? Doesn't matter, something obvious, something obscure, anything that you can think of? I mean, I grew up singing and... You know, I sang in bands for years. The first song that I ever sang in front of anyone was Tapestry. And my dad had that album. I just played it out. And then the Joni Mitchell stuff. But Tapestry was the first album where I was just like, wow. I always sang along with the men rock and roll singers because i that's what we had. You know, that's that's what most of them were at the time anyway. And then that album came out and I, I, that was really cool. I remember thinking, oh. Man, and actually, I mean, I don't think I listened to it right when it came out. I, I was young, but I do. I remember just playing that over and over and over. My life has been a tapestry of rich and royal hue, an everlasting vision of the ever-changing view, a wondrous woven magic. In bits of blue and gold A tapestry to feel and see Impossible I'm born in 61, so I'm 62, 63 coming up. And that era, my older brother worked for Warner Brothers, so he brought a lot of those albums home. But what's weird is I can't hear lyrics. So you as a singer are sharing, you're singing the lyrics. I can't hear a lyrics to save my life. It's the weirdest thing. I can hear a bass line. I can hear the guitar solo way in the background. I can hear what the guitar players riffing or could hear whatever. Maybe it's just because what I was brought up with having a father as a guitar player. But Tapestry album for me is the one that hit me the most for obviously, again, not because of lyrics. I just love the music. I love the music is what, really beautiful. What Danny's doing his, you know, as I would sit here with the editor and every time that solo comes up, that lick, I scat the lick. You know, and kidding. Yep. This should drive my editor crazy, but I can't hear the lyric. And so I was thrilled that actually one of my favorite albums and Sweet Baby James and the other one that Leland's, because Leland's not on either of those. He doesn't come in until the next one, but Leland does Billy Cobham Spectrum. Oh, yeah. And, oh, wow. And that was, you know, I didn't realize. And that was what I was into in the 70s. I was into jazz fusion. I was into Return to Forever. I was into horns. I was into Earth, Wind, and Fire and all that stuff. And it was weird because I had that album. Never know Leland was in the bass. I love that album. But that was what I was into. I was into instrumental stuff. Were the guys also with James on the JT album? Yeah. 
Yeah, I thought so because I was going to say too, when I was a kid, like my dad used to have an old DA track and I just yeah. remember putting those big ball headphones on and listening to damn that traffic jam, how I hate to be late. You know, it was just like, <laughs> I love that. I love that song, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. that album was great. You know, that other, that other one uh, I cut an outtake to was Little Dave, which is off the mudslide slimmer, whatever, 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 whatever. There was a great story is because James was redoing his house in the country, wherever. And there was like a lot of construction equipment everywhere. He's building and all the guys are there. And he starts developing this thing called Little David. And so you hear the hammer, you know, starting. And then you hear this, well, takes a chainsaw about 150 feet out there. And they run a huge, the longest headphone cord ever you know, because James is out there and they're recording it from way over 150 feet out of the forest near his house. They just want to hear it come through. And he goes, and Craig Durge, the piano player, starts feeding them through the headphones and E, you know, on the piano, electric piano, whatever, and E. So James has to basically take the chainsaw and rev it up to the to the E note. And that's where it started. So if you listen to it now, it's hilarious because you hear it. You go, oh, wow, that's a chainsaw. And, and how Peter, and how, I'll send you guys the the outtake. Peter asked yeah, her. It's hilarious. That's awesome. That's awesome. Peter, goes, that. Peter says, you know, he's fighting with James to do this. He goes, you're taking the chain off the thing. He goes, no, it'll change it down. He goes, I don't care. You're taking the chain off the chainsaw. Because he's not going to lose an artist out there with this stupid chainsaw. You know, that's all he needs is to lose his main guy. You know, chop yeah. his leg Can you be a fly on the wall all that time? It must have been amazing. A couple of albums that I sort of was going through by collection, thinking, oh, when the weather. And a, a couple that I'm, I really, really love that they're associated with. Gene Clark's album, No Other, uh, which I oh, think wow. both Leland yeah. and, and Russ Kunkel right. were, were a big part of. And I just, it, it's funny because I've been listening to a couple of podcasts this week that have been telling the story of the birds and Graham Parsons, of course, Gene Clark heavily being involved with them. Another one, uh, what he was involved, I'm guessing like we're all huge fans of Randy. Newman. That's an album I've played tons of times, you know, with and what he's on that. But sort of left of center, I think, an album that Danny Korchma was on was a Nelson album that was produced by John Lennon called Pussycats. And I don't think that's anyone's really? favorite album, but to me, uh, uh, yeah, Kerry's going, nah, no, sorry. I love it because it is, yeah. it, it sort of shows like a, this decline in Nelson from, well, it was, from being it's the- interesting because that's the era where Nelson and Lennon and Lennon's doing, he, I don't know if the time period is right. The long weekend, I think. Right, where Phil Spector's making him do that one album. Yes, Phil roll. Spector did that album, the rock and roll album. And there's a point where, and this is from my other film, where there was an outtake where they were talking about John's having a problem, obviously, with home. So he leaves the studio. So he has Nelson, Cher, who's the third to sing? Chorus. It was supposed to, I can't remember who the third was singing, but basically they were supposed to be the backups. You know, singing, mm. and they ended up doing the single because it was John was gone. But at that era, that Danny's all there, and Bob Blob's there. He starts hanging out with these guys. That whole era, the early seventies, must have been. It was pretty cool. 
Again, I wish my father was around because I would have loved to ask him all these questions. How familiar was he with the guys in immediate family? Like, was he friends just with Leland. any of those guys? Oh, no, just, just, just Leland. Leland. Okay. And he would have known of Danny and Wadi. He would have known of all these guys. He, I think he probably, you know, again, he's the old guy on his way out, but he's on his way out into a different era, very well-respected part of his career because now he's working with John Williams. He's working with Mancini and Horner and all those guys. And oh, wow. I always yeah. asked him, what would you like to be remembered for? He goes, listen, in the 60s, he said, you know, I did whatever, Batman and all that stuff working with the Beach Boys he goes but anyone there's eight other guitar players could have done that he goes but when James Horner or John Williams are saying in two months I have a film please hold the first two weeks of that month that means they're asking for him they're not asking for a guitar player it meant a lot to him because he knew where he stood in his career I wanted to bring up one final story about your dad which I absolutely loved and that was his appearance on the gong show can you please tell the audience about that (laughs) if you're probably a certain age you have no idea idea what the gong show was but Chuck it was Barris. A, uh, yep. Barris, yeah he had this silly uh what was it silly talent show where you could get gonged off at that point in his career it's gotta be 75 74 i can't remember you know at that point dad is moving into that other world of doing the tv and the film and he's but all those years up to that point, NARIS, which was whatever NARIS stands for, National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. Wow, that came out of nowhere. Um, that's right. I don't know where I pulled that out. But he would get the most valuable guitar player every year. It's like, And all of a sudden, Larry Carlton gets it that next year. It might have been 72 or 73. And so dad, he gives the prize to Larry at, the, at their banquet, musician's banquet. Well, my father doesn't go quietly. He was a jokester. He dressed up as a ballerina. And he sang a song to all the musicians, including Larry, about how his career went from in the 50s, I was something in the 60s, I was like a king. Now the 70s rolled around, I'll do just about anything. And he would go through all the guitar players. And this is an inside, basically, joke with all the his banquet. Well, his friends are working on gong show. So he takes it to the gong show. His friends are there. He doesn't tell them. And because you, I guess you have to audition there. And he goes in with a guitar and a ballerina suit. He's like, what, 280 at this point. And he tries out and he's, he's going, okay, you're on. He goes, what? He goes, yeah, you gotta go in that room. You stay there until we, they pick them. And he comes out and he does it. And he wins the, he won the, the prize. In the 50s, I was something. In the 60s, I was a king. The 70s come around, now I'll do anything. Ninety-nine cent check. Yep, I remember. He, he, he said I parlayed. He told everybody. He says I parlayed it into. He goes, I got the five hundred thirty-two dollars or whatever it was. He goes, yeah. got a shower massage, and then they asked him what was the song. He goes, I wrote that song. So he got that little check. He goes, <laughs> nice. he's trying every angle possible. Wow, that reminds That's me funny. kind of of there was an old skit on Saturday Night Live where Neil Armstrong's buying groceries at the grocery store. And then he goes out. He's standing in the parking lot. And he looks up and he's like, it just kind of makes you feel like, you know, what you've done. And then, and then after that, you know, and it's just kind of like when you're looking back, you just kind of yeah. like, whoa. Like- Both films, Wrecking Crew and Immediate Family, one of the things I liked 
about your style as a documentarian is that you kind of stayed out of it. I have seen documentary films where the filmmaker sort of inserts him or herself into the film. And it's sort of like, I didn't come here to see you. I came here to find out about whatever the subject is. But I, I appreciated your... It's funny, you, you should see all the footage on the floor. No, it's all about... <laughs> I gotta say, there's one well, example where it's done where it's done right. It was like it's a, a prologue and a postscript on the documentary about the Sonics, where the director, who we've spoken to on the show, he wanted to show about like his connection to his father. His father, big fan of the Sonics, and all he knew was Nirvana. And then all of a sudden, this right. became his connection to his dad. So it was like a, a beginning and an end. And I thought, I well, love that. That's what the Wrecking Crew is, if you remember. Yeah. Because right. Right. what's interesting is when I cut the Wrecking Crew, well, we were cutting and we had 20 minutes cut. And a friend said, why are you cutting it? So the editor and I, and so why are you cutting it this way? I said, what do you mean? He goes, it's a history documentary you're cutting right now. Any one of us can cut this. It's basically information. He goes, you're not including yourself in this. Now you got to realize this is uh, 2001, no, six, 2006. And at this point in my career, I've already done gripping and I've done lighting and I did all this other stuff. So I've been in the business, but this is my first directorial you know, endeavor. And my ego was saying, don't put yourself into this. It was the opposite for me. I thought, I knew if I became part of that story, I'm not the director. I'm the son of the director or son of the guy in the movie. And right. it was a big jump for me. And I didn't want to do it. And he convinced me and a couple of us, I think it's a good idea. We tried it and it worked. And there's, you know, you put yourself in and it worked and it worked so well for me because you know what? Now I don't have any backlash. Why isn't it so-and-so in it? Why is it, you know, you can't put everybody in it, first of all. But you know what? It changed the direction. I needed my father to be the humor. Like, Waddy's my humor in this film. I could bring dad back in at this point. You know, he's making the run on the countries and all that other funny stuff. So I could always, and then it made sense. It totally made sense. And I don't regret it. But do people look at me differently? I think so, probably. But who cares? It's a better story. But I agree with you. I Like this one, yeah. I just want to be a voyeur and let everybody else do. It must have been so hard hard for you at one point to make a, a document as a tribute to your dad and being so close to it in your mind. And I don't want to speak for you, but I, I mean, I'm just thinking in your mind, you're like, I don't want to fuck this up. I, like, this has got to be. Well, it's interesting. Be, all right. So dad is diagnosed with cancer 96. So I quickly start maybe 96, close to, yeah, whatever, 97. He dies at the end of 97. So I quickly put that round table of the discussion together. It's Carol, dad, Hal, and Plaz. And I do that, and I'm shooting film, as I said, and I start and I do a couple others, and Dad dies, 97, 98, we cut together a piece. I keep trying to get this thing made for the next 12 years, next 19, oh, whatever it was, 19 years. But it was never, what was weird was it never felt like Dad left me in a weird way. If, if anything, you know, if a psychologist probably say, well, he's milking this thing not to give up, you know, maybe he's, he's never going to finish it because he doesn't want to leave his dad to leave. No, that is not the truth. But it never went away. So I never felt, you know, a lot of people feel that way about their parents. You feel like, hey, you know what, they're still, their influence is still there. I just happen to have video and sound of it, but they never leave you. I wish he would have seen it. I know he would have flipped out over it. 
Yeah, because he, my, you know, my mom saw it every time she could go to a theater to see it or screening because it was very emotional for her, you know, and, and my dad would have been a basket case. Uh, he was a very emotional person, even though he looked like a truck driver. He'd cry at the drop of a hat. So what's the um, reception been to immediate family? How's it showing at the moment? Is it festivals? It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, we did a year of festivals and it went, we got like 18 awards. Wow. which I'm very proud of. And it's a trip because once you get a couple of awards, you go, okay, I'm okay. We're not, you know, and we corrected things as we went along because you see it the first time, you usually see it with a crowd, but it was COVID. So the first time we showed it to a real public was a festival at uh, Woodstock. So that was a little scary, but we got the award and I could see problems with the film and we kept correcting as we went along. And then uh, we got picked up by Magnolia. So now you can rent it. It did 75 theaters in December and it's still a few theaters playing it but now you can rent it on any of the pay-per-views mm-hmm. and that's been the best thing is like I'm getting emails from everybody and I'm not saying listen it's my film is so great these guys are great you know all I'm doing is delivering it in a hopefully in a manner that's acceptable and you just suck it in you, you, know? you definitely gave them great representation Denny um, oh, there's, there's uh, so much fun. I mean I Seriously. That's why we need the, the Blu-ray with the three hours or two hours and 59 minutes, as you oh, say. No, you got, yes, 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 yes. Of and there's a whole, by the way, that part of that three hours is that whole roundtable discussion. Oh, Excellent. nice. We'll appreciate it if you can go back to the cutting room and just send us the discussion about Sesame Street. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> you, find it again. you know what? You're going to make me actually do that now. I'm going to just cut it and I'll send it to you guys. See here. Oh, Influences to awesome. the Hollywood filmmakers. Fantastic. Look, we, the three of us are just so thrilled to have had you on the show, Denny. Much respect to you and your dad and all who Thank sailed you. with him. I look forward to seeing whatever it is that you choose to do next. Yeah, What's man, Jack? Great. Really? No way. Yeah. Nice. No way. Yeah. Wow. So we'll clap for the Wolfman. That's right. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, well, we'll have to have you back oh, for that one. Shit. Wow. It's so funny. I'm going to use this, what you just did. If I could record the, send me that piece when I tell that. I'm sending it to the family. Oh. They, we're excited about it. We already did Richard Dreyfus. Oh. It looks like I got Burton Cummings coming in a couple of weeks. So nice. Oh, fun. nice. Man, yeah. I just remember Midnight Special. Him on the Midnight Special, yeah. man. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's weird. It's another film that, where was I during that period? I remember it, but I don't remember watching it. I must have been uh, playing. I don't know why I missed it. I don't know if you know this or if you if you can get the rights to use the footage, but he was not, well, I mean, obviously he was in American Graffiti, but he was in a movie in the 80s, Motel Hell, where he played a minister. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, like there's a lot of films. That he, he was in oh, a number of films. He was, he, he was in Roadie too, right? It, it's amazing because he was just his character. And that's one of the things I'm excited about is when I said, talk to, you know, when I met the family or talked to him and all that, I said, I wonder who Bob Smith is. That's who it is, Bob Smith his real name and I want to know what the so they've said I've gotten so many like 40 60 DHS tapes now but you know everybody talks about him it's just it's such kind things and I could see it in the videos the home videos it's a trip watching him with his camera and he's videotaping all his Christmases he loves Christmas so he's taping his daughter and his son opening the gifts his mother mom what do you got there hey mom what do you got that and she goes it's a clock it's a beautiful clock (laughs) it's things like that go Oh my God, that's Wolfman. Yeah, you know, right. try to make the right. plot better than it it's, was. It's funny you talk about Wolfman and Christmas because I love one of my favorite pictures of all time is Alice Cooper dressed up as Santa Claus with Wolfman sitting on his lap. Yep. <laughs> and that's that's one of the other. That's my other interview. I got to get 
I got to get him in. So once again, thanks, Danny, for being a part of um, this great conversation. Thanks for Thank being you. on on See Here, uh, our Thank 10th anniversary. So we'll be back in a moment to talk about what's going to happen on See Here, episode 114. you enjoyed that because the three of us certainly enjoyed doing that conversation the wonderful news is that Denny enjoyed himself so he's gone and promised that he's going to come back to the show to talk about his next film or he'll come and talk to us about just a film that he loves really as a 10th anniversary show we couldn't have had a better gift we just had so much fun talking with Denny got a lot of interesting uh, insight into not just the films but also just how the music industry worked over there in uh, Los Angeles so once again some great musicians some great songwriters we absolutely loved having that conversation with you Denny so um, look forward to having you back on the show sometime in the future as a special silent partner we have uh, Skippy the puppy over at <laughs> Kerry Fristo's place he's saying mommy stop doing this podcast and feed me yeah yeah uh, yeah so that concludes this show that was uh recorded here in uh january of 2024 february of 2024 i don't think we'll be putting out an episode in february there's some personal stuff going on that doesn't allow me to be around to record our next episode will be sometime late march of 2024 that'll be episode 114 and we've got another interview this one will be involving a lot more than merely music related film so I've reached out to a, an author called Daniel Devise and he's gone and written a book called The Blues Brothers An Epic Friendship The Rise of Improv and the Making of an American Film Classic now I don't know about you two but I've already read the book and it's absolutely fascinating insight so there's a lot of stuff there about the early days of Saturday Night Live about uh, Second City which is why I was asking you about that, I think, recently, Kerry, about the origins of Second City. And, of course, a large chunk of the book is talking about the making of the Blues Brothers film and the musicians who are involved with that. We forget that people like Aretha Franklin and John Lee Hooker and James Brown and Ray Charles were not at the height of their popularity. And it's fascinating to see what this film did in reinvigorating their career. So Daniel has a lot of great stories in the book and we look forward to having him on the show to talk about the book and about the history in general. So um, that will be in late March of 2024, fingers crossed. If you're missing us in February, go through our back catalogue. Find an episode that you haven't listened to. Hopefully you'll find something that you love there. Let other people know that this show exists. Uh, we'd be immensely grateful. Any final thoughts, Kerry, Tim? I, okay. I loved this. This was fascinating. 
this was an amazing episode. And then again, thanks. Amazing. And, you know, multitude of thanks go out to Denny Tedesco. Thank you so much, man. This was a great time. I love that point that you made in the interview, Kerry, talking about not really bringing himself too much into his film, but he did bring himself in just enough to find that personal connection without making it about him. And I right. think that's something a lot of documentary filmmakers don't recognize. But um, yep. he, he did it just enough to bring us a wonderful story. And he always had his eye on the ball. So. Uh, yeah, thanks, Danny, if you're listening. Until we meet up again, look after each other, be nice to each other, and we'll speak soon. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.